How do you lead change and influence others from the middle of the organization? Welcome to another episode of Relearning Leadership, where we explore a specific leadership challenge and break it down to help improve your leadership, your organization, and even your personal life. Today, I'm joined by Travis Matthews, a director of IT solutions from a mid-sized financial cooperative. As a middle manager, Travis is squeezed between the goals of senior leadership and the execution through his and other teams. And because the organization's feeling competitive pressures, Travis is placed on a task force to help lead an organizational change to improve the responsiveness of his broader organization. Where we're trying to stay competitive in the market, like we have to move faster. This is the story of how Travis navigated both. I'm your host, Pete Behrens, founder of the Agile Leadership Journey and 30-year veteran in corporate leadership, both as a leader myself and in guiding other leaders. And as an engineer by profession, I now help leaders optimize their people systems to become more focused, responsive, and resilient to change. I'm excited to share Travis's story with you. And following our dialogue, I'm joined by Karen Kemmerling, another 30-year leadership veteran and coach, to dissect what we relearned. One of the, the nuggets that I think we can all get is this whole concept of self-awareness. And how you can improve your own leadership to lead change more effectively from the middle. Let's dive in. Hey, Travis, welcome to the show. Thanks, Pete. Glad to be here. Travis, to provide us some perspective of your director role, could you describe how you fit in your corporate structure? Sure, yeah. Kind of right in the middle. We have our senior executive team, our C-suite, then vice presidents, and then I'm at the director level. Then after that, we have our manager and team leads. Yeah, that's one of the things, you know, we think about is, uh, you know, the manager squeezed in the middle, you know, you pressure from above and and challenge below. Uh, I can imagine you probably feel a little bit of that pressure. Yeah, it's an interesting place to be for sure. You're, you're caught in two worlds of the strategic and where the organization's trying to go in the trenches with staff and trying to meet their needs. And I like your story because I think so many people can relate to it. As a middle manager, you know, how can we influence others and lead change? So let's take a look at your story a little bit. Provide us some context. For listeners that might not be familiar with credit unions, we're a not-for-profit organization where we have volunteer boards. And in our credit union in particular, we're very heavily involved in the community. The organization is very service-driven. We're here for our membership. And we always talk about differentiation. How can we be different? Obviously, we're, we're a credit union. There, there are lots of credit unions. Or a medium-sized business, you know, so we have 700 employees. So you, you put us up against a Wells Fargo or USAA, we're pretty small. So the resources we have to kind of innovate and move forward are, are limited, but like, how do we maximize that? Traditionally, you know, we're a risk-adverse industry, right? Like, so how do we move faster? What you're describing, as I think, is being felt by the financial industry overall, you know, a highly competitive and disruptive environment, you know, with Apple introducing the credit card and, and Google Finance for investing. I mean, I can imagine your organization's feeling that competitive pressure as well. Absolutely. Yeah. The neobanks, um, just the consumer demand, right? The Amazons, the Googles, the Facebooks of the world that are, you know, um, the digital delivery that's happening and the expectation that consumers have is definitely putting pressure on financial services. You've been with this organization for quite a while. Uh, and so maybe just give us a, a focal lens of what we might be talking about in this story. I was introduced to Agile Scrum kind of in the late 2000s and kind of came back excited, invigorated, like, hey, I really think this framework and this way of working can really benefit our organization. And it seemed to be a great fit from a cultural perspective. So we're a very collaborative culture. And I, I don't call it naivety, but, you know, the organization wasn't quite ready, but we did experiment for a while. <laughs> 
you're reminding me of my own workshop participants who often leave, you know, the class excited, you know, only to be deflated and brought back to the real world uh, upon returning to work. Yeah, totally. So like from like 2010 to 2014, I actually left the organization for about three years. And then WSCCU reached out to me and asked me if I was interested in coming back for the role I'm in now. And so I did. It's amazing how changing your organizational context can provide a new perspective. You know, it lets you separate from that day-to-day view and really pull back and, you know, see the big picture. You know, for context, could you describe your new role for us? The director of IT solutions role. So I came back to lead a couple engineering teams, uh, a, a data services team. Okay, so you're a new director, you know, focused on leading a couple of engineering teams. But how did you get involved in this broader change initiative? My leader, you know, created the burning platform in the conversation with the broader organization. As things got off the ground from a formal perspective, it was a creation of a cross-functional leadership team and was invited to be part of that as essentially an agile coach for the organization. Just a little side note, as I came back, I'd, I'd had a dialogue with the CEO and um, I was able to build a rapport with him and we would talk about some of these, I would get more complex topics. And I, I would talk about Scrum and Agile. So again, kind of thinking about this concept, leading from the middle. So this tra- this this cross-functional team forms, uh, you're a part of it, but my guess is you're not running it? I'm not. How does that feel to you in, se- in a sense of, you know, okay, I'm here, I'm, I'm a subject matter expert of, of Agile, but in a sense, again, you're, you, you know, how do you influence that team when you're not the one in charge of it? For me, it's about relationship and building kind of that rapport with colleagues. I haven't been one that uh, lets titles really get in my way, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> not being afraid to have a conversation with the CEO about a certain thing or give him some information and say, hey, I really think this could benefit the organization. So that has been helpful for me. And I think being genuine, authentic about it, it really for the betterment of the organization. So people kind of know what your motives are and how do they know that? They know that because they have a relationship with you. People often say, you know, what, what is it like to influence? And what I'm seeing from you in a sense, regardless of position, regardless of the fact that you're not in charge, you are influencing, you're, you're having dialogue with the CEO, you're having dialogue with other stakeholders about what this means and, and some of the concepts and sharing information with them, which is definitely a form of influence. Yeah. And ultimately, you know, as a leader, you want to provide value to the organization. So it's, you know, it's not all talk, right? So there, there's obviously you're able to execute and perform and, and see the teams be successful. So I think, you know, having a track record is critical too. Like it, it, it takes a while at times to, to, to have that influence. What did you find most challenging in that uh, starting point or in the early phases of that? I think number one is probably the impact of people change. There's a mission why we're there, right? We're there for us to, to serve our members. And there is an attitude of service, but that is made up of all the people that want to serve. We're a very collaborative culture, but there's that, the you know, maybe consensus building or not, you know, what we call Northwest nice, don't want to hurt somebody's <laughs> feelings. And so I think one of the nuggets I've taken away in this journey is that don't necessarily talk about changing culture. Just talk about doing the right thing. I like the way you're connecting culture to people. You know, many leaders, I think, struggle with this intangibility of culture, but I think you've made it more real for us. You know, you're sharing it's a reflection of your own authenticity and these trust relationships you've built. So with people change being the most challenging, what did you find to be the most useful in helping you lead change from the middle? 
at the time and kind of the critical mass of this getting off the ground, I was going through to organization had its own leadership training. And I, I think that the whole discovery for me was a greater sense of self-awareness and understanding other perspectives was probably one of the bigger tools for me and trying to say, okay, I'm super passionate. And how does that come off? Well, how do I show up to people when I'm overly passionate? Do I come off as a zealot about agile? <laughs> and so I think, you know, gaining greater self-awareness was probably the biggest growth area for me over, uh, I would say it was a period of almost a year. I was doing both of those classes at the same time. What's interesting here is, is that you're involved in a critical change initiative, but you're also involved in a personal change initiative. You know, and leaders often, you know, question me, you know, whether or not taking time for, for self-focus would be a distraction from their work focus. I'm wondering, did, did you find these to be complementary or did you struggle to manage both of these at the same time? Yeah, no, great question. I naturally am self-effacing. So a lot of self-analysis was probably not something I was excited about, but it was really helpful to take the time to understand how you're wired. And a lot of times we don't, like we just kind of, we know who we are and we want to move forward and just get the job done. But I found it invigorating and, and energizing to kind of dig deeper with how, how do I become a better leader? I, you know, I use that term a lot now, like how do I show up to others? And then considering what do they want to hear from me? What is it they are seeking? Like those that I'm leading, how can I help them do their best work, be empowered? Take COVID, for example, huge impact to the world, to our country, to our to multiple industries. In setting up what we we had built with the Agile teams, we were able to adapt and change very quickly. Like when that thing hit, the teams pivoted and said, okay, how do we take away fees? How do we get cash to to our members that are, and are hurting, who just lost their job, that went to unemployment? How do we help businesses that just all, all had a revenue stream and no longer available to do business because their clientele can't come to them? You know, all those things. And so we, in a short amount of time, delivered a lot of value, you know, those first few months of COVID. What I love about what you're saying there, though, is, is we often interpret productivity and, and, you know, delivering more and that speed of delivery. And, um, and, and what you're, what you're, what you're illustrating here is actually a responsiveness an agility. It's, it's not necessarily more, it's more appropriate at the right time. It might even be less, but it's perceived as more in, in, a, in a way that because you're doing something that's targeted, tangible, and quick in a sense. And I think a lot of leaders miss that. I don't want to set this up as a, you know, nirvana. I'm not suggesting that everything's perfect in your company and the <laughs> company is, and that's not the point here, but you created some really positive change, but it was, it was recognized and it was seen across the organization. Uh, I'm curious if there, you found any particular skills valuable as you look back at that, what, what do you think was most valuable in terms of uh, what enabled it to occur for you? having the growth mindset is huge, like being not afraid to fail, but it really is having that courage to kind of step out and take the risk and uh, try something like if it doesn't work, okay, let's learn from it. And let's try something different, you know, empathy and putting yourself in other people's shoes, understanding what their perspectives are. It sounds like your success, you can kind of tie back to the fact that you had to change. You had to kind of take some initiative and, and take some risk and, and um, you know, in a sense, get vulnerable. You know, reflecting, taking a step back, um, you know, on this story, how have you changed? 
what's you know changed in you in a sense? How how do you see yourself today differently than maybe a year or two back as you started this journey? Well, great question. I think I, the increased awareness of what influence you can have, kind of greater capacity of leadership, and then just challenging my own assumptions, I think, are what I think is possible is another area I feel like I've grown in. I love that. It's essentially a you know, you're in a continuous state of relearning and uh, you got to basically just step back and, and, and recognize that things are changing in front of you pretty, pretty quickly. <laughs> As you think back, any advice you might give to others who are in this middle, in this frozen center of an organization? Put the people first, realize why you're there. People need to know you care about them, not just about the work, but them as people. It seems so simple, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> it really does. But I'm amazed. Like people take different journeys, right? And uh, I'm a very relationship oriented person. And so, uh, you know, there's folks that are maybe not be wired that way, right? Like there's very more, more task oriented type folks or process oriented. And, you know, you still got to get the work done. But my perspective is if you take care of the people and they're excited and invigorated about the work, it's going to get done, right? Like I really take the the empathy of like, tell me the story, what's going on. There's usually something behind the thing, right? There, you know, if, if there is an issue at work, there's probably some issue outside of work that's impacting the individual and understanding what that is and what the story is and saying, how can I help you? That's, I love that sentence. How can I help? Travis, you sound like the kind of manager I would like to have. <laughs> I just want to say thank you for spending the time with us today. Thanks for sharing your story. Thanks for being vulnerable uh, with us in, in a sense, emotionally and and uh, just through the storytelling. And, and I think other people will benefit from you, your willingness to share. Thanks, Pete. No, it's been great. Thanks for having me on. I'd like to introduce Karen Kemmerling uh, with experience as a CIO, a COO, a CTO, and 35 years of corporate leadership from startups to global enterprises. She's trained as an engineer and received her PhD in management and organizational development. And she currently runs a brain-based leadership coaching practice, focusing on enabling leaders in developing growth mindsets. Welcome to the show, Karen. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Barons. Great introduction. I'm pleased to have you on the show and uh, looking forward to our conversation and, and, and talking about Travis. Uh, you know, I, I just I mentioned in the podcast that, that I'd love to see uh, I'd love to have Travis as my own manager. His deep voice alone, I think, makes me feel coddled and safe. <laughs> <laughs> I chuckle when I think about that because I know you, Pete, a little you like autonomy. And one of the highlights that I learned as I listened is that he's really good about trusting his people and expecting people to do the right thing. Besides his uh, silky smooth voice, uh, yeah, he seems like a great manager. <laughs> I can appreciate why you'd want to work for him. Me too. <laughs> but before we maybe dive into his story, maybe I, I, I want to just maybe take a minute on his role as a director. You know, directors tend to be kind of micro-focused. You know, they, they've, they're one level removed from, from first-line management, but yet they still kind of focus in a department, a division, a function. What is the core responsibility of a director just to kind of lay the groundwork here? It's a good question. You know, I think every company has its own sort of expectations of that role. And the director role, you're right, is, is pretty narrow and somewhat myopic about the task at hand. I think the director role is tough. And I think it, it, it's clear it comes out in, in the dialogue with Travis is that you are in the middle. Things are coming down from the C-suite, the VPs um, to the directors, and they're still expected to sort of get in the trenches and understand the work. So I think in a lot of cases, most people either want to get out of that role or go back to being uh, an individual contributor. 
unless you really have a passion for people. And I, I think Travis does. Yeah, you know, I, 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 you're right. And, and a lot of directors I see, you know, have a challenge getting out of that conduit role. I use that term conduit because they're kind of just like a pass through, you know, just, just, you know, having to execute the strategy of top leadership. And maybe they don't believe it. Maybe they do. But, it, but it's, you know, it's, it's difficult to, to, in a sense, break free from, from that, you know, direction and find your own path as a director, you know, and, and I, I'm wondering, you know, as you listen to his story, maybe what jumped out to you? I think he is a little unique in that he has a great relationship with the CEO. It's nice that they, you know, they share dialogue and articles and so forth. So they clearly have this bond. The other thing that Travis didn't say that I thought was kind of special and, and really jumped out to me is that, you know, he feels safe to try things and experiment. And that's a sign of the culture at that company. I put that in this space of of building trust and and that starts with inclusion. So then he has the opportunity from that step to to learn. And he wants to try things. He wants to experiment with Agile uh, within his function and then across the company. You know, he, he starts to become a, a coach uh, for a leadership team. And then he can actually challenge the status quo. Yeah. So, so it sounds like we've got, you know, some safety. And, and I know for a lot of listeners out there, they're probably thinking, you know, if I'm not in a safe environment, if I'm not in a safe culture is this possible, you know, or, or what, what additional would, would a Travis-like leader need to do in order to, in a sense, do what Travis did without having that, that safety net is, is, you know, what, any advice we could give to listeners on that? You're right. If we step back and, and step away from Travis's kind of special situation, most people probably don't have what he has. And it's like, what could I do? And what I learned from even from Travis is that you start where you are. And he did that. He did a lot of self-reflection as the leader and, and awareness of, you know, I need to be empathetic or why am I talking? Those kind of things I think are very transferable outside of, of his scenario to others. Well, I th- I'm, I'm glad you bring that up because, you know, it's definitely something I noticed as he was starting to share his story. It's almost like his organizational change journey was paralleling his personal change journey. And, and you know, there's been uh, many kind of, you know, um, uh, experts in the field who, who talk about the standpoint that you're not going to get organizational change without leadership change, without a mindset change. I think you're right. I think the person does have to have a desire for leadership and to challenge themselves a little. I think if you stay in, in your, your swim lane and, and don't think about it, it's not going to change. I think I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to dwell on trust because I think that's a key component. But building trust really starts with a couple things. One is competence. Travis is very competent and he gets accolades for his skills and his knowledge and his experience. And then his reputation and credibility and having some small wins create this situation where people in the company want to trust him. But the other part of the trust is his character. And this is the personal side we talked about where it's really his intent, where he's caring, he's transparent, he's open, he's honest, he's fair, he's authentic. Those two things, so character and competence together, generate this special trust. And I think that doesn't have to be Travis's company. That could be any company. And any leader in the middle could start there. I think what you're describing here is effective leadership as moving from director and on up it shifts from a focus on the work and the projects to the people. And, and what you're starting to see now is Travis has kind of made this shift. 
And Travis has been effective because of this shift. And so I'm wondering if they're kind of stuck in this kind of still focused on projects and work, are there techniques that that they can use or, or an approach that might that they might consider to help develop this this muscle? He focused on awareness and and really getting some feedback on his leadership. The intent of the whole program is really about practicing. What I learned, and, and I think anybody can do this, is to not try to put so much pressure to be like, you know, like a switch, like I'm going to show up tomorrow and, and be the perfect leader. It's like, no, I'm going to show up tomorrow and I'm going to be intentional about I'm working on my awareness. And part of my awareness is that I may drive too much of the meetings. I, I, others are not contributing and therefore I'm going to wait to speak until others have. So I think that's useful for a lot of leaders out there. And, and what I'm hearing in that response is there's no silver bullet. It's about intentional practice. And, and I would support that as well. I, I think, you know, this is a skill that can be developed, a muscle that can be developed just like anything you do, you know, getting better at writing, getting better at, you know, communicating, um, you know, being a better you know, focus on relationships is a muscle that can be built. I'm thinking about all those leaders out there on task force, you know, on these initiatives where I'm not in charge, yet he seemed to play a very impactful role. So so how do other leaders out there create more influence uh, or create more, uh, you know, uh, yeah, j- j- just sway in that in that team when when they're not in charge? Travis got that opportunity to lead that team, um, even though he's not leading by, you know, an org chart. Um, he is leading, right? He's leading because he's competent and because of his character. And and I would argue that the inclusion within that company and within that group is going to create innovation for that company. And I think that's applicable to every company. Well, I think that's a, a really good point. You know, this story was, in a sense, an agile transformation story. And for the listeners out there, maybe don't quite understand that. I, I think we could just translate it to an organizational change. Absolutely. I, I totally agree with you, Pete. People are people. And as a doctor of organizational development, we learned like an organization starts with an individual, then it becomes a team, and then it's a department, and then it's a function. It starts with the person. And we all have a lot of the same DNA. We all want to be included. What I loved about Travis's story here was, you know, and and we've seen COVID be kind of that digital transformation, you know, uh, trigger for many, many companies. But what I loved about they turned value into responsiveness. And I love just how they're able to just, what do our customers need right now? And I thought that was really, really pointed, you know, and you think about that, could that apply in non- pandemic times, you know, what do our customers need now? The other thing that I, I think hopefully will continue to grow is that within the credit union environment, the credit unions worked together. So competitors, right? So I know the financial industry a little bit. And I can tell you that Wells Fargo and Bank of America are not buddying up and trying to figure out how to work together. So I, I think that's that's an opportunity for us to look at the future and say, rather than than be competitors, yeah, we all need to make money. It's like, what are the things we could do together to make our products and services better for our customer, which at the end of the day seems to be the thing that drives company success? Well, it's interesting you mentioned that. You know, you look at the shift Microsoft has done, and obviously Microsoft is not a credit union. They're not. They're not that that people organization. They're a competitive organization. 
and you look at the the tenure shift from a Steve Ballmer to a Satya Nadella, and I would argue probably the most significant change was from a competitive to a collaborative focus, you know, collaborating with Google and Apple and say, why aren't our products on an Apple platform? It's one of the best out there. And, and, and that shift in, in thinking about a both end, even in a competitive space, has propelled Microsoft's value. So, so while you're saying maybe the other banks aren't doing it, it doesn't mean they couldn't. I think you're right. People learn by example. So if Microsoft is crushing it by working with Apple, you might be surprised. Uh, pretty soon, Wells Fargo and Bank of America are working together. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't want to pick on them, but I, I guess the, the point is valid. How can we both win? We're all kind of continuing to relearn our own uh, uh, leadership mindset and, and what we've done in the past. I'm kind of curious, are you thinking about leadership differently, you know, following the story, and maybe what's been, you know, refocused for you? It's a lifelong thing. And one of the, the nuggets that I think we can all get is this whole concept of self-awareness. I have my opinion too, but a lot of times, you know, we see it our way and our way is the way. And I think from Travis's dialogue and perspective, he tried to see it from the other person's perspective. And I relate to that very much. Well, Karen, I just want to say thank you for sharing your insights today. Uh, thanks for for providing us some some analysis with with Travis here, and you know I'd maybe just want to leave uh, uh, you with just just the concept of number one, it's possible, uh, change is possible from the middle, uh, and number two, you know as as I'm hearing here, it starts with you. you know, find find what you can do to start to change the relationships and start to reach out in those relationships. All organizational change is people change. You know, what I heard you, Karen, say is you've got to start to role model that. You've got to start to, to do that yourself before others are going to follow along. So thanks again for joining us today and, and look forward to seeing you again soon. Thank you, Pete. Relearning Leadership is the official podcast of the Agile Leadership Journey. It's hosted by me, Pete Behrens, with analysis from our Global Guide community. It's produced by Gabe Gerzon and David Reamer with Matter Communications. Art design by Nicole Bedard. Music by Joy Zimmerman with editing by Ryan Dugan. If you love listening to this podcast, please leave us a review. And to relearn more about your own leadership, visit us at agileleadershipjourney.com.